morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for our Military Strategy Forum, and a special thanks to Rolls-Royce uh, for their sponsorship of this series. Uh, today, it's my pleasure to be introducing uh, General uh, Herbert Hawk Carlisle, who is the commander of Air Combat Command, uh, located nearby in Langley Air Force Base in Virginia. Um, at ACC, uh, General Carlisle is responsible for organizing, training, equipping, and maintaining combat-ready forces for rapid deployment and employment while ensuring strategic air defense forces are ready to meet the challenges of peacetime air sovereignty and wartime defense. He has previously served as a commander of Pacific Air Forces and among many other assignments, he's also served as chief of air operations at U.S. Central Command in Saudi Arabia, during which time he participated in Operation Restore Hope Somalia. He's participated in Operation Provide Comfort in Turkey, Operation Noble Eagle as well, and he served multiple tours of duty for his sins in the Pentagon and on the air staff. So without further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming General Carlisle. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Dr. Hicks, thank you very much. Kathleen, it's great to see you again. I really appreciate this opportunity. It's a great chance to, to talk to you today. I'm, I, I'm really here um, to, to hear what's on your mind. I find these uh, opportunities to chat fascinating because I learn an amazing amount. Just the name Think Tank makes me feel smarter. So I'm seeing if, if I hang around all of you enough, maybe by osmosis, I'll, uh, I'll gain some things. But uh, any opportunity I get to spend with uh, Dr. Hicks, Dr. Hamry, and this organization is truly uh, valuable for me because I learn as much uh, and I try to impart whatever uh, my thoughts are and where we're coming from within uh, the Air Force and Department of Defense. Uh, so what I decided to do today is I'm going to kind of go through things. Uh, I'd like to talk about our challenges, the things we're facing, and what I'm thinking about kind of day to day and, and the environment we're living in based on the, the world that we're in, and then uh, kind of where we're headed. And there's some good news in that and some of the things we're doing. There's some huge challenges that you'll hear. And then I really want to kind of have a dialogue and answer any questions you might have. And I, again, I think I learn an awful lot by hearing what you're asking about, which gives me great insight. So. So I think if you look across the Air Force, and I, as uh, Kathleen said, I just came from the Pacific Air Force as, a, as one of the customers of who I am now as the force provider in Air Combat Command and the developer for where we're headed. I think most folks know that within Air Combat Command, we do global force management for the Air Force. Obviously, we have responsibility for CENTCOM in support of AFCENT, which is part of Air Combat Command, and SOUTHCOM with 12th Air Force and AFSOUTH. And then we're a force provider for Europe, uh, the Pacific, uh, all the other commands, uh, certainly all the other geographic commands. And again, we also supply force uh, to CENTCOM and SOUTHCOM. Uh, so what we're looking at right now is the environment that we live in and the five core functions that Air Combat Command is responsible for. We are the development as well as the global force management and force providers where the requirements and the development capability for the five core functions that the Air Force, out of the 12 the Air Force is responsible for. That includes air superiority, global precision attack, global integrated intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, command and control, and personnel recovery. So I'll talk about those in kind of the context of where we're at today and where we're headed. Uh, I think the, the, the probably the most uh, stark point is where we live today with reference to the environment we're living in. So if you think back, and, and again, I was talking to some of my young captains the other day, and I think many of us come from different backgrounds. So. Uh, for the environment we live in today, I was a captain during the Cold War. I was a major during Desert Storm. Uh, I was a squadron commander and a group commander in Operation Northern Watch, Southern Watch, Provide Comfort, where we just 
did Iraqi free, you know, we did the circles over the top of Iraq out of Turkey and Saudi Arabia. I was a wing commander at 9-11, and then I was a wing commander again in, uh, uh, in the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan war when I was up at Elmador. And then, of course, the op step is this world shifted, and we're coming out of Afghanistan, we're coming out of Iraq. Rebalance to the Pacific, which I think is obviously incredibly important and, and the right way to go, uh, when, again, things change. So similar to where we were when the wall came down, the Soviet Union disintegrated in 1990, the invasion of, uh, of uh, Kuwait in, 19, in the summer of 1990, uh, air war over Serbia and the former Republic of Yugoslavia, and that ability to predict or not to predict that happening. What happened on 9-11? Uh, those two wars and enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom, and then, of course, uh, the Arab Spring and where we're at today. So from the perspective of air power and what we're providing to the nation, so we cover the spectrum, and I think theater air power is incredibly important across everything we do. And you can see it from the support of Nepal, uh, the, the operations in Japan that we did when I was over in 13th Air Force in PACAF, in Operation Tomodachi, so on the humanitarian assistance disaster response, the need for theater air power across the spectrum is incredibly important. Clearly, when you look at the South China Sea, you look at a resurgent Russia, you look at North Korea, you look at Iran, that is also a case where theater air power is incredibly important. So as we look back, and out of necessity, in the early part of the, or in the middle part of the decade, decade, in the height of Iraqi freedom and, and enduring freedom, we by necessity shifted to a portion of the range of military operations that was incredibly important to us at the time. Our ability to support the land component, what he was doing on the ground, our ability to counter terrorism, our ability to support the fight in Iraq and Afghanistan from the ISR perspective, um, medium to, to medium altitude, probably less contested environment, our ability to do strike in seconds, uh, our ability to provide lift wherever and whenever for maneuver on the battlefield and around the battlefield, uh, our ability to provide communications, things like bacon and thing, uh, to, to the land component. And by necessity, we shifted to that. Of course, that was at the expense of something, as it always is. And you've heard the discussion is we lost some of that high-end capability, our ability to do things at the high end of the order of military operations of, of what we would do in a contested environment, highly contested environment, or as is now used, anti-access area of denial. So if you, if you think about that, and then you think about as we came out of Iraq, and we looked at the drawdown in Afghanistan and what that was going to look like, this predates the Arab Spring and then what happened with failed states. And we were moving, in, again, by necessity, back into the capability to do the high-end fight. What do we need to do to be able to do the high-end fight? Uh, what do we need to be able to do to continue to deter an aggressive and expansionist mentality of the PRC? What do we do to continue to deal with something like an asymmetric threats out of North Korea and an unpredictable leader there? How do we deal with Iran and what would happen there? And then, of course, on top of all that, as we move to that, uh, resurgent Russia and Putin's Russia came about. So today, I think what you find from our perspective is we cover the spectrum. So, and again, theater air power uh, come, is early in demand, and it is constant in demand, and it is the last in demand. So you have to have air power in first. You do, and it's across the spectrum, whether it's ISR, whether it's lift, whether it's space capability, um, more and more increasingly in the cyber realm and how we operate there along with our joint partners across all those domains. But, uh, continually, you have to have them in early, whether it's a humanitarian assistance disaster response, it's a deterrence, it's dealing with a resurgent Russia or China, or it's in a counterterrorism failed state um, in the wars that we've been in for the last, uh, last 15 years, 25 years in some cases. 
So the need for theater air power, what we find ourselves in today is simply a capacity challenge. We, we can't get there from here. We are on the ragged edge with being able to meet. I, today, I have a very difficult time meeting the demands of the combatant commanders across the globe. Uh, there's not a continent on this planet that doesn't have airmen actively operating in some kind of operation today, and it's been that way for a long time. Uh, so if you think about uh, our ability to react to uh, what happened in Nepal with air power as well, again, it's a joint force and it's always a joint force, but our ability to react to what happened in Nepal, at the same time we're dealing with failed states in Libya and, and uh, Yemen, same time we're dealing with ISIS and their counterterrorism fight, the fighting season in Afghanistan, uh, Crimea and eastern Ukraine, the potential in supporting our friends and allies in the Baltics in Europe, as well as Korea, as well as an expansionist and um, land reclamation prone PRC in the South China Sea and the tensions in the East China Sea, all of that requires theater air power across the spectrum. So from my perspective, I will tell you uh, from uh, Air Combat Command and Air Superiority Global Precision Attack, uh, and again, it's across all of them, we, we have a hard time meeting the demands of the combatant commanders today for what they're demanding uh, across ISR, C2, uh, air superiority, global precision attack, and PR. Every one of them, some of them more so than others, are uh, incredibly stressed uh, for our whole, uh, our whole um, portfolio in, in every one of those five core functions. So the challenges and capacity is the, is the biggest thing we face. Readiness is the other thing we face. You'll hear the chief talk about we have to get back to realistic training. We have to get back to realistic training across the range of military operations. We are very good in some sets because we've been practicing them extensively and executing them extensively in the conflicts that have gone on for the last 15 years. There's ones at the high end and the right side uh, that we have not spent time on. And again, by necessity, we came off of those. Uh, I still believe some of the decisions that were made were made in the right thought, in the right belief, but the world has changed drastically. Um, there was a, certainly a belief at the time, not in the Air Force, mind you, that, uh, that we had enough F-22s. Air Force did not believe that. I think we probably don't. Uh, well, I, I know we don't, in my opinion, uh, have enough of those. So at the high end level of the fight, I think that's something that uh, we have to look at in how we conduct those operations. So the challenge is capacity and readiness. I will tell you on the other part on the readiness thing, our airmen um, are doing amazing things. They love what they're doing, but we are factually burning them out. Uh, we're asking a lot of them. We're asking a lot of their families. Uh, our ability to, to continue to retain the best and brightest this nation have to, has to offer, which is our airmen, uh, is becoming increasingly a challenge because of uh, what we're asking them to do. And if you look at the deploy-to-dwell rates, and, and some people have a tendency to look at when they're downrange versus when they're at home, but when they're at home, they're not often there either. So it's actually an, a compounding effect uh, of how much we ask from, of them and their families. Um, there are initiatives, so getting to, the, to where we're heading and how we're trying to get around some of these things, there's some things that you've probably heard about. Uh, capacity is a factor, and I mentioned that. We just simply don't have enough capacity to do everything we need to do in support of the global fight. So one of the ways to capacity, obviously, is increase it with budget challenge, which is probably our biggest challenge today. That's hard to do. Uh, so one of the other ways is how can you do things faster? How can you move around quicker? And you probably saw the F-22 deployment to Europe. Uh, uh, that recently came back incredibly successful in support of uh, General Breedlove and General Gornick. Um, those airplanes, it's, a, it's called Rapid Raptor, kind of got its genesis in the Pacific and we have adapted it across the Air Force. We're working on what is rapid next. Um, 
if we have uh, United States air power show up in places and at times that people don't anticipate, that has a great effect. It has a great effect in ensuring friends and partners, and it has the potential to have effect on deterring potential adversaries and aggressors. Uh, so that's, and how we look at that, KC-46 is a big part of that as that comes online. Obviously, the capability of C-17 is a fantastic airplane. That's kind of where it came about. It was the third wing at Elmendorf. Uh, we had C-17s and F-22s in the same wing. Amazingly, when you give stuff like that to young captains and master sergeants, and what they do with it is phenomenal, and they're the ones that came up with, hey, why don't we put a C-17 and Raptors together, go anywhere we want, we can do FARP, we can put munitions, we can put maintenance, we can do an another set of crews so they can sleep, we can put onboard communications so wherever they go they know what's going on. So it was all kind of started from there, so how do we take that to that next level? What are we going to do with that? Uh, we're working hard across to all of our uh, core functions and how we get to that rapid. How can we move things around more rapidly in an environment to achieve an effect in, in, in uh, an area or if we had to in a battle space for a period of time to allow us to accomplish what uh, the National Command Authorities are asked. We're also looking at what's called the, the, the PR guys, the personnel recovery guys call it RORO, but it's a rapid PR RORO and we're going to exercise that here before too long where we take a personnel recovery capability, again, using our incredible MAF mobility air forces, put those on um, uh, the MAF aircraft, move them somewhere, get them down, fold out the wings on the helicopter and be able to respond rapidly to whatever's going on. Uh, we're gonna, you'll see that shortly, but then we have to take it to the next generation. What are we gonna do after that? How can we move the assets? I'm looking at deployments for, with respect to global force management and how I'm providing for the combatant commanders. I'm looking at how uh, can I, provide more uh, capacity given that I'm stagnant with the size of the force shrinking in many cases. So I'm looking at how I deploy, what it looks like, how fast I can do it, what the duration can be, can I put them on, a, on, a, on, a, on an on-call or prepare to deploy order type thing where combatant commanders like General Breedlove and Admiral Harris have the ability to go, I need them now and ask for them, they get them there, they are there for a month or two, able to do a mission in accordance or a deterrence mission with them, and then they'll come back and start to reconstitute. So we're looking at ways to do that. We haven't worked our way through it, but we're trying to get there again. That's a capacity problem that we're facing. Uh, we're the smallest Air Force we've been in the history since we became a separate service in 1947. We're the smallest in the number of peoples, we're smallest in the number of aircraft. Yet the demand for theater air power is as high as it's ever been. Uh, and it will continue to go up, in my opinion, uh, if you just look at what's going on around the globe and the ultimate high ground that air power provides for you as part of the joint fight. And I would re-emphasize uh, it is part of the joint fight. But it is the ability from our space, our on-orbit capability, to our uh, air capability, and again, increasingly in the cyber realm. Some of the things we're thinking about with where we're developing our capabilities, uh, on the air superiority side, everyone has heard the stories of the F-22 and its operations in uh, support of the fight in the Middle East today. Phenomenal. I told a story at AFA the other day. Uh, Two-ship takeoff at 6 o'clock at night. They escort a coalition strike package with Jordanians, Bahrainis, and Emiratis. They do deliberate targeting, targeting in accordance with the ATO. Uh, then they stay in the airspace, defended, highly defended airspace. They do tactical reconnaissance to see the results of those uh, strikes, whether we have to restrike any. They go back, they pick up F-16s, back into the airspace. They do dynamic or uh, time-sensitive targeting, dynamic targeting to take out emerging threats that are coming up as a result of the earlier strikes. Go back to the tanker, come back in with a U.S.-only package that includes B-1s, EF-18Gs, F-16s, and they do high-value target takedown in a very heavily defended area. 
Um, by the time they landed back, 12-hour uh, missions, six distinct aerial missions. That's the kind of things Air Superiority is doing. How can we do that even better? Uh, what are what of our weapons, when you think about our precision, our ability in the suppression of enemy air defenses capability, you think of our air-to-air -air weapons and what are we going to be able to do if you look at the adversaries and what they're developing, things like the PL-15 and the range of that weapon, how do we counter that and what are we going to do to continue to, to meet that threat? The other thing I'll tell you about the, the technology, certainly in the air superiority, the F-22 and the F-35 in its uh, follow-on will make every other aircraft in the battle space that much more capable. If you talk to anybody downrange today, anybody that went to Northern Edge, anybody that flies in a red flag, when you have Raptors in those fight, it'll be the same with F-35s. They bring the level of every other aircraft up in what it's able to do. I use the term aerial quarterback for an F-22, and I think you'll see that is much how it's being employed. Uh, and again, when you hand those capabilities to a bunch of captains and uh, weapons officers, they make it even better than you thought possible when you started. Global precision attack and the support of the land component. Again, we're working hard. Some of the things we're working on in a close-in fight, uh, I talked about those a little bit, dial of yield or what they call cockpit selectable effects, things like the SCB-2, small diameter bomb two, advanced precision weapons kill system. Uh, how do you use that? How do you give uh, a fusion capability to an aircraft uh, that shows up on station and a JTAC on the ground so that you basically really do everything you can to eliminate the problem with uh, friendly fire, uh, especially in danger close situations. How do you give that selectable yield or dial a yield capability? How do you give them the loiter time, the on-orbit time, uh, and how do you give them a magazine depth that is as unlimited as you can get it to, to continue to, to work uh, uh, troops in contact? Uh, interdiction with the global precision attack capability, whether it's long range, long endurance, which I believe we're under um, invested in. We need, that's why uh, long range strike bombers are so important to the United States Air Force. We have got to get long range, long endurance capability at the high end uh, in support of the B 2 and the, the need for that. How do you get those type of capabilities? What kind of standoff can you get with weapons and get precision at a level uh, that is incredible today? But when you think of the environments we're going to go in the future, whether it's GPS jamming or heavily jamming or heavily air defended, where weapons that are not uh, necessarily low observable will have a hard time penetrating that, how do you do, do that at a long standoff range or, when required, get into a battle space with something like an LRSB um, to deliver effects in the battle space that you need to do? Uh, so we're working on those in, in both air superiority and global precision attack, working very hard on directed energy weapons. I talked about that the other day as well. I think there's some folks out there that don't see that as a, as a near-term capability. I think it's probably nearer term than a lot of people imagine. We learned a lot in pre previous things like uh, airborne laser, ABL. Um, we've looked at, you know, that was a chemical laser and where we're going with uh, uh, our ability to generate it in a different mode. Uh, obviously, the challenges are swap. How do you do that on an aircraft, especially fighter size aircraft? Brad Heithold's working really hard on a C-130 capability. I don't think that's, I think by 2020, the turn of this decade, we're going to be, I believe we have a chance to be there. Brad's working really hard on it. We're in support of him there. We're also looking on trying to get it in a potted solution uh, for a fighter size aircraft. Uh, and again, I think that's not as far away as some people think it is. Uh, swap is a big challenge. How do you handle the heat and dissipation? How do you do beam control? When you're talking uh, fighter site type aircraft, you're talking supersonic, transonic, you're talking jitter, you're talking G's, those are all challenges in how you're going to do that. But imagine either high power microwave laser uh, type weapon that has the ability to defeat an adversary's, adversary's surface air missiles. 
Now your ability to, to penetrate a contested or anti-access aerial denial environment by taking out service to air threats and continuing to penetrate. Uh, those are things that uh, we're looking at. And again, I believe that uh, directed energy weapons are closer. Uh, we got a lot of work to do. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of physics. I'm fortunate to have my uh, chief scientist at Air Combat Command is uh, Dr. Janet Fender, and she's brilliant. She's a PhD in physics. So I, again, I just put my noggin close to hers and hope I can get smarter by osmosis. And she's working it with industry and they're doing some fantastic work. Um, global integrated ISR and C2, I talk about those together. Those are inextricably linked. You cannot talk about one without talking about the other. It is decision advantage for our nation in the joint fight and how we do that. Our ability to use machine to machine, if you look at what our DCGS, our distributed common ground system airmen are dealing with, they are flooded in data. How do you turn that data into knowledge and knowledge into decision advantage? Uh, how do you do that machine to machine? Uh, how do you do, you know, we're working change detection and those things. Uh, what those two enterprises, the RPA, ISR writ large, big wing ISR like Rivet Joint as well as U2 and Global Hawk, uh, on-orbit capability, how's that play into it? How do you bring that in real time into the fight uh, in providing information, again, decision advantage? Uh, and then the ability to process, uh, exploit, and disseminate that, the PED piece of that, and what our uh, distributed common ground station airmen are doing, our intel airmen, unbelievable. We have to make it easier for them. We have to get inside of that. Um, part of that is the C2 network that provides that information to decision makers as well as the forward edge of the tactical fight. Um, we're looking at aerial layer networks. Obviously, comms going to be contested in the future. Uh, I dealt with it in the Pacific because it was contested by potential adversaries out there because there's a paucity of satellites in the Pacific because it's a lot of ocean uh, and because you have natural disasters and often you lose calm because of natural disasters. The Korean Peninsula was cut off for a good period of time after the great East Japan earthquake and tsunami because all the undersea cables were severed. So um, how do you do that? How do you build an aerial layered network? How do you make every coalition and U.S. aircraft that is in the battle space a potential node to provide information? Now you cover a wide node, the quote unquote is it's called kind of a mesh network of nodes. Now if you have jamming or deception out there, it is, it, they can't do it over the entire battle space so you can disregard a node because you know it's either being jammed or deceived and you have, still have communication available. How do you build that? How do you build the fifth to fourth? We're working hard on that and Talon Hate and the follow on to that which is maps uh, that allows us, uh, we're gonna have gateways for a long time to come. Wish we didn't, but we will. So how do you do those gateways to provide all those different nodal capabilities and network capabilities so that you get information from whether it's an on-orbit capability, it's another ISR platform, it's another tactical platform that can penetrate like an F-22, an F-35, a B-2, or an LRSB and provide that real time to the rest of the fight again to bring everybody's ability in the fight to come up. We're working really hard. I've been described as a C-2 zealot. I'm proud of that because I am. Uh, because you can talk about it all you want, and if you can't control theater air power in real time, then you don't have C2. So control is half of that term, command and control, so you have to be able to control and how do you get there. We're looking at other things. There's things out there and we have some, some, uh, some capability. I will tell you, John Hyten, one of the smartest people in the world, will tell you, you can fight SATCOM. It's not easy, but you can do it. You can move, I mean, he's, again, John's brilliant. And how you move satellites around, how you do it now, you have to have an organization and architecture to be able to do that. You can't have a bunch of stovepipes where one service or one entity controls this comm and another service or entity controls this comm. You have to build that organization that allows a single centralized command, decentralized execution, the tenets of air power. I'll say that it's a tenet of space power as well 
So how do you have a centralized command that can move those things around and make decisions in support of the joint warfight and what, who, whatever that joint warfight war fight commander puts as the highest priority? How can you move those systems around to fight in the SATCOM realm? You can do that, but it takes work and it takes the organization and the enterprise. What other methods are there? Uh, if you look at some of the things uh, that there's a, 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 some new technologies out there with respect to how do you use HF. There's new aperture and antenna technologies out there that some of our small business are developing that is simply amazing. Has the ability potentially to go from uh, 20 megahertz to 40 gigahertz. I mean, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Now, what could you do with that in a comm mode in some kind of agility where an enemy may be trying to attack you in a spectrum and you can get out of spectrum in that. So fantastic work in the, in the C2 and global integrated ISR. Again, uh, our airmen are doing fantastic work. PR, uh, uh, the combat rescue helicopter has to stay on track. We're trying to figure out more and more how we can get that into contested airspace. HC-130J is critical to the success. And then what technologies can we put on that airplane? Uh, how can we get it in a contested environment? We have a moral obligation for anybody that is down that we will go and get them. It is often a prerequisite for coalition fights. Many of our coalition partners will not participate if they don't have United States PR and they have it close. Uh, so our ability to do that and do that in a contested environment is incredible. I think um, uh, if I would tell you, and then I'll, uh, Kathleen, I'll get a chance to talk, because uh, I can talk about this for a long time, as you might be able, you might imagine. I'm a little passionate about our Air Force and our air power. Um, I think that if you, if you wanted to, to really look at the good news uh, in the United States Air Force, it's our incredible airmen. And we see it every day in what they do. Uh, and I, again, I mentioned it the other day, we have you know, capital I innovation, we have technology, we have the uh, industry is doing incredible work to help us. The dialogue between industry and Air Force is fantastic and what we need and how we're gonna get there and what we're gonna do for the future, what's available, what do we really need, what gaps and challenges do we face and how can they help us get through them. Um, and then you take that technology and you give it to these airmen and they're just simply amazing. So it goes from the capital I innovation industry gives us, we give it to big I, big airmen, big I innovation and what they do with it. It's the F-22 example and how much better it is than in many cases we ever thought it was going to be. And they're doing things with it that is far beyond what was originally envisioned. F-35 will be exactly the same way. Long-range strike bomber will be exactly the same way. Some of the other systems, some of the on-orbit capability that John Hyten is developing will be the same way. And it's big eye innovation from those young airmen that is simply amazing. And it's big things, and then it's just common sense. That's the other part that I think you find amazing. So I'll end with one story. So I go, I'm down at, uh, uh, at uh, Tinker, talking to my C2 airmen. They're fantastic. And you know, our demand for AWACS is just incredible. And so we're trying to keep these airplanes flying. It's an old airplane, not as bad as the J-STARS, but close. So I'm into the, the program depot maintenance, the uh, ISO is what it's called uh, for the big airplanes. And so I'm in there and I'm talking to this uh, cell chief that's responsible and he goes, sir, I'm getting my airplanes out about four days ahead of time. And, I, and that's increasing aircraft availability. That's fantastic. That's a capacity gain. And I go, that's great, young man. How, you know, how are you doing it? And he goes, I locked the door. I went, okay, you gotta tell me more. I gotta understand this. He goes, well, sir, you know, here's my office. The airplane's right there, uh, but there's a back door in this building and all my guys are, and girls are working back here in this back office. Everybody takes a shortcut through the back door. They bother all my people before they get to me to ask the question. So if I lock the back door, 
They have to come around to the front door. They have to talk to me first, and I don't let them go back there and bother those guys. And I get another day of work out of every one of them because they're not messing around with everybody around them. It's just it's things like that. It's an airman that uh, uh, we were driving. He was driving fuel trucks, and he was an LRS guy, and the, the trucks were getting salty because it, in in it was in Kadena, actually. And, he, uh, and it took five airmen eight hours to wash the fuel trucks. They had to do it about every month and a half because of corrosion. And he's standing there, when a master sergeant, he's standing there one day and he looks out and he watches an airplane taxi through the bird bath on the ramp that sprays water and cleans airplanes. And he goes, why can't I drive my truck through that? And everybody told him no. Airfield Ops told him no, the OSS told him no. It went all the way up through the chain. It went all the way to the Pentagon. Finally got to the functional manager in the Pentagon and the functional manager in the Pentagon looks at it and goes, I don't know why you can't do it. <laughs> Says in the reg you can't do it, but I can change the reg. They change the reg. So now they drive the fuel trucks through the bird bath. Takes five minutes, one airman. And the air truck is cleaner, by the way, when it goes to the bird bath. But it was one master sergeant that was said, I'm going to make this, and he was persistent. So that's, uh, that's, that's our airmen. And if there's any good news in, in our Air Force, it is the incredible young men and women that wear the uniform. Uh, we have got to take care of them. We have to take care of them and their families. And I will tell you right now, that, that is a challenge. We're asking a lot of them. Uh, the, and we can talk about it if you have questions. Budget uncertainty is absolutely devastating. It's devastating to our airmen. Whether we believe it or not, they think about it. They see it on the news. It's talked about all the time. They lived through sequestration. Uh, they've lived through, our civilian airmen have lived through furloughs and government shutdowns which is unconscionable to me, what we did to our civilian airmen, unconscionable. So they're thinking about it, and that's another stress in their life they don't need, and we're not able to give them budget certainty. We can't do what's right for the service. Uh, it is devastating, and you've heard everybody from Secretary Carter on down talk about what an extended CR would do to us or if we go back to BCA levels and what it will do to our, uh, to our service, certainly to our Air Force, to the military, the United States military writ large. So with that, uh, Kathleen, again, thank you. Hopefully uh, that was something to elicit some comments, questions, or concerns that, that we can talk about as we go forward. Thanks, so thanks, thanks Kathleen. For that great talk, there's so many uh, items I want to talk to you about. Let me start uh, sort of where you ended, which is sort of the heroic feats to get to um, new ways of doing business. Have you um, thought through, or do you feel like you already have in hand, an institutionalized process now at ACC for a culture that rewards experimentation, that allows for failure to try new ideas. What are you doing in that regard? And I, I don't think it's uh, ACC specific. It's mm -hmm. Air Force writ large, and I give Secretary James and General Welch a whole lot, of, a tons of credit, and, it, and including Larry Spence, our former Vice Chief of Staff, and Every Dollar Counts, uh, our innovative airmen, our ability to get ideas out there. Uh, it is certainly an Air Combat Command and how we, how we allow our airmen uh, to, to be innovators. I mean, we're service born out of technology. Airmen, by nature, are innovative. I, I truly believe that, and you see it every day in the small things and in the big things and what they develop. So I, I believe we have, uh, within ACC, we have a, 
a process of, uh, of, of sharing ideas across the command. So the, the good news is the wing commanders embrace it uh, and they allow their airmen uh, to, to come up with ideas, fail sometimes. Right. Uh, but we share them across the command so that we gain knowledge and there's a, there's a network uh, and a, a, it's a program. It, I hate to call it programs. Everybody hates programs. It's not a program. It's a collaborative event where people go on this SharePoint site and there's these ideas. There was a, a, a young man. I mean, again, it's just brilliant. There's a young man that developed an app for his iPhone. Everybody has an iPhone or some kind of Android. He developed this app and he's an airfield manager kind of guy. And he basically, anybody that has an iPhone can go to this app, go out on the airfield, if they see something, take a picture of it, automatically goes back to this database network that logs it down to the inch of where it is, records the, the, records the picture, assesses what it is, and collates it with the rest of the data. So the airfield manager has, instead of one guy driving around trying to figure out if there's fog on the ramp or if there's uh, you know, spalling coming up or there's uh, problems with the concrete, he has a constant database that everybody that's on the flight line adds to his data. So we, we have things like that. So we have airmen doing amazing things with respect to that. And the other part of it, I think, truly is our leadership development. The way that we're training our future leaders, whether it's a squadron commander, or a group commander, or wing commander, and our, our flag officers as they move forward. And, and again, I give Secretary James and General Welch a, a tons of credit because it really is about leadership development. It's about having the trust and faith in the system and your airmen to allow them to be innovative, to let them do what they can do, fail on occasion, um, and learn from that and make the next attempt probably that much better without, you know, if I have one failure, that's in my report card or micromanage, which is to me a terrible leadership trait uh, that you have to be in control of everything. So I, I believe, again, through the leadership in our Air Force down, we really have embraced it. Uh, can we do more? We can always do more. And we're working on trying to do more. What do you think is the uh, view that you have, at least at this point, on the potential, in this general category, on the potential for unmanned systems in particular to change the way in which the Air Force operates in the future? I, I, we're doing it. I mean, I, I think it's, it, it's it, clearly what we've done with the RPA fleet um, and uh, unmanned sensor suites. Well, I mean, there's so much uh, that we are doing and trying to continue to develop. And, you know, there's stuff that's um, being developed today that's obviously in a different level of, of uh, security. But uh, so I think, um, again, I'll, I will tell you, if, if you want to uh, gain faith in America's youth, you need to go to my RPA enterprise or my distributed common ground station enterprise because these young men, they're 20 to 25-year-olds that are taking what we give them and go, hey, here's what you need to do, and they're making it so much better. So on the RPA side, I think uh, um, we, uh, it's, it's part of our Air Force. It's in our DNA. It'll be in our DNA forever. We're taking that and expanding it. One of the challenges we're having with respect to the RPA enterprise is we can't get breathing room to do anything. Mm. Uh, we're doing, unfortunately, zero continuation training because they're all engaged in the fight. We're trying to make everybody's aware of the challenges on that, uh, both the RPA and the DCGS enterprise. Uh, we're about to, we're in the process, we're in it, we're doing it right now actually. There's a thing called the Culture and Process Improvement Program for RPAs and DCGS. And we're trying to figure out how to make that enterprise whole. We've been in surges continuously for the last eight years. Uh, we went from 21 caps in 2008 to 65 caps. Uh, that's a huge amount of manpower. That's a huge amount of work. That's a huge amount of surge capacity. 
So I think, you know, truthfully, I believe that it's, it's absolutely, it's probably untapped. We're doing a lot, but I think a lot of it is untapped because when, when we give that, when we get that enterprise healthy and we give those airmen a little bit of breathing room and we get the weapon school all stood up and we get the instructor cadre all stood up in the, in the training unit, uh, you'll, again, you'll give it to these young men and women who think differently than I do and they'll make even more of it than we can imagine today. So I, I think there's huge potential in futures. MQ-9s in the future. We did a, actually a one second. It's a long answer, sorry. Um, we we uh, had a little bit of free time in, with some of the weapon school folks in the MQ-9. We actually, I think it was between classes, and we'd had a couple instructors there. And so we put a couple MQ-9s into a high-end red flag fight. You know, and we al always talk about MQ-9s and, and, and the medium altitude RPAs or, you know, in a contested or degraded environment, it, it, it's a challenge for that, that aircraft to participate in that. Uh, yeah, it is, but there's also some innovative ways you can take advantage of that technology. And the MQ-9s in a high-end red flag with a high threat level, not, you know, not necessarily the highest threat level by any stretch of the imagination, what we may see from a Russia or China, but a very highly contested environment, and MQ-9 was amazingly successful. They, I mean, we gave the adversary some really tough decisions to make when he looked at something and he goes, well, because of what we could do with the RPA with respect to where we could put it and how we could employ it. And again, it was a couple of uh, sensor operators and a couple of uh, weapon school guys that went, hey, let's try this. And it was really fascinating. So what, what we can do with the RPA enterprise in the future, I think, is, is really untapped today. Yeah. The people piece is so important, of course, in everything that you've said. Um, and you talked about that in, in your remarks at the beginning as well. Uh, what do you think are the skill set issues that most concern you or ch maybe just cha are challenging for the Air Force as it looks ahead to the make sure, making sure it maintains the kind of quality of innovation and, uh, you know, high-end skills that it needs? What, where are you challenged in that regard? Um, I think uh, that's a very good question, actually. I th you know, one of the things that is not a, it, it's a skill, but it's not something that you can necessarily go to school is, in the environment we live in today, is the critical life skills, the mm -hmm. balance in life. Uh, you know, we, we unfortunately, um, tragically, we have lost a lot of airmen this year uh, to taking their own lives. And it, it's, I will tell you, it rips my heart out every time it happens. Um, and it, and it, it is so tragic, and, and I feel like I haven't given them everything I could to help them balance their lives. So uh, when I, I go back to taking care of women and their families, we're asking an awful lot of these young men and women, and it's a different way of war. I told the story the other night of a tech Sergeant Rodriguez who was doing a convoy overwatch and switched the troops in contact. He mobilized over there, danger close, less than 100 meters. Ground commander through the JTAC, two MQ9 or two Hellfires into the enemy concentration, takes the enemy out, and then he went home to his family. That's a different way of war, and that's that's not something that we fully understand on either the DCGS side or the RPA side. But uh, so that critical life skills and life balance is something that is, it, you know, every leader in our United States Air Force has got to think about that. My job in life is to take care of airmen and their families. They do the mission and they do it incredibly well. My job is to make sure them and their families are taken care of and I provide them what they need to do to go do the mission. Critical skills with respect to it, I, I, again, uh, Kathleen, cyber I think. Cyber is the one people talk about all the time yeah. in terms of making sure that the military can 
you know, bring in, retain, right. you know, a cyber workforce? Are there other areas like that? Well, I think the C2 and ISR is one. Mm -hmm. I think the, the ability to, to do C2, the PED piece of, uh, mm -hmm. of uh, DCGS, the processing, exploitation, dissemination, the machine-to-machine -machine work, um, uh, kind of cyber, but maybe more application is computer skills mm -hmm. and, and, and computer uh, code writing and things like that. Um, and we do, we, we struggle hard to make sure we can go out and, and reach these airmen and draw them in. And it's what Secretary Carter's working on, which again I applaud, is brilliant, is going out to places like Silicon Valley and going out to those universities that have those STEM programs uh, and, and try to draw in that kind of technical expertise. Right. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and again, Secretary Carter talks about it very well, when you look at the bureau, and you know this well, the bureaucracy that is the Department of Defense for the United States of America is, you know, sometimes people are put off just by what it takes to get engaged in that, whether it's a small company trying to sure. develop a capability and, you know, if they can go to industry or somewhere else, commercial enterprise, significantly easier, they'll be able to do it probably more rapidly and they very potentially will make more money. Uh, so how do we draw those, that kind of innovative spirit uh, and bring that to make the Department of Defense easier to work with. And I think that's one of Secretary uh, Carter's pushes. But same thing for the Air Force. How do we go out and, and get those uh, young men and women that, that are in, passionate about that and, and make what we do inviting to them? And I will tell you on the cyber side, and if you go up to Fort Meade or you go down to San Antonio or Georgia or out to Hawaii and you talk to these young men and women, actually, that you know, once if we can talk about it, when you bring them into the military, they actually have the ability to do more of what they do. And so they actually really like it, uh, you know, because they, they, you know, they get to do things that they probably wouldn't get to do many other places. You know, they can do a lot Let's of Let's hope they can't protection. do it in many other yeah. places. That's, that's true. That, that's very true. So yeah. I think we're getting there. Yeah, we're, we're trying to. Well, I'm going to turn it over to the audience in a minute to ask questions, but I cannot let you leave without asking you about the F-35. Um, so the uh, F-35 is supposed to reach IOC next year, 2016, mm -hmm. which is coming upon us pretty rapidly. I'm interested in your views about uh, your confidence in the uh, F-35A being out there, deployed, ready, and um, how healthy you think the program is and how important is the F-35 to what the Air Force believes it needs to accomplish. Okay, so if we got about an hour and a yeah. half, I can talk uh, <laughs> nonstop for that whole time. Uh, F-35 program's going great. We have our first two F-35s at Hill. They flew, as a matter of fact, got a note last night. They flew their first operational mission yesterday. So they arrived less than a week ago and they're flying operational missions already. Um, the airplane, we have over 13,000 hours, about 13,500, I think, 13,500 hours in the airplane. 74, the Air Force owns 74. Uh, we have uh, about 200 maintainers trained. We have uh, pilots trained that are flying them at Hill, as well as Luke is about to stand up its second training squadron, as well as the training capability at Eglin. And our operational and developmental test guys at Edwards and Nellis are flying the airplane a lot. The airplane is ahead of the F-22, where it was in the same stage of development, uh, in the same stage of fielding. Uh, we had earlier challenges, everybody's aware of them. Concurrency was something that and probably it was a little bit of overconfidence in what we learned from the F-22 and what we could transition to the F-35. So concurrency caused us some challenges with we thought we could field because we thought we had some of the technological and uh, manufacturing challenges worked out and we probably actually hadn't. I think largely, I think Chris Bogdan will tell you we've gotten through most of those. There's probably still some of it out there. There's always discovery in new developmental programs. Airplane's performing very, very well. I, I believe the, the F-35 is going to be a fantastic airplane. 
the United States and our friends and partners have to have it. It, it, it really is. It'll, it, it's just a great capability. It has uh, got some, uh, some of the things we learned in the F-22, and of course, the U.S. Air Force has advantage of doing stealth for a long time. Go back to the 117, to the B-2, to the F-22, to the F-35. So we've learned a lot, and you combine that with what we learned in developing the F-22 uh, and, and how we design that sensor package, the electronic warfare capability. Uh, it has some amazing capabilities with respect to how that, that sensor suite works how integrated it is, how you bring all those capabilities together and provide that pilot, just like in the F-22, amazing situational awareness, as well as electronic warfare capability in that airplane, uh, and how you uh, are able to very digitally move that to where it needs to go in either defending yourself in an electronic countermeasures or in uh, attacking with electronic warfare, attacking some on the adversary side. So I think the airplane's doing well. I think it's, uh, it, it's gonna be successful. I'm, I'm confident in the airplane. There's challenges. Alice, I'm still, I gotta tell you, the, I, don't, I, I didn't even know what autonomic meant. So when they told me it's Alice, I, what does that mean? They go, autonomic logistics information system. Good, what's that mean? Um, so I'm, we're still working our way through some things with that. The helmet's looking good. Uh, I think that's gonna do well, and that's another capability. If you look at that 40 by 40 degree night vision, um, you, you know, if you, if you get a chance to fly with it and you look through the floorboard of the airplane as an airplane passes you, you kind of go, man, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, it is cool, but it's also what our airmen will be able to do with it. So I, I'm confident in the airplane. I, I think IOC, uh, we'll get to IOC. I'm, I'm pretty confident in that. I mean, there's some things we got to work our way through, and, and certainly Lockheed Martin, I talk to him a lot. Mm -hmm. I talk to him a lot. Um, which is good. That's yep, the way it should be. Good. I spend a lot of time talking to those folks, and, and they listen. They really do. Uh, and uh, so we got some things we have to work our way through. My concern is Air Force side, and that is logistics and maintenance manpower. There's a long pull in the tent for readiness, full-spectrum training, uh, F-35, taking care of our and their families, is we are flat short of maintenance manpower. Um, and it's that, so I, we'll get to IOC, FOC. We got it. We in the Air Force have some challenges we have to work our way through. Good. All right. Let's open it up and see if we have some questions from the audience. We have plenty. I have one right up front here. And just wait. I'm sorry. The microphone's coming. I should have said that. And just tell us your name and your affiliation if you have one. Yes. Hi, uh, Lee Jung Greco inside the Air Force. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the training gaps for RPA pilots. Um, so I was wondering if you could address, first of all, um, how that's affecting the mission right now. Um, and then secondly, when you think you're going to be able to uh, stand off that program that you were talking about, okay. the continued learning? Uh, it's Culture and Process Improvement Program yes, is the name you. of it. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. Great question. Um, so I think there's two components to that. The, the training enterprise, um, the FTU, the the, the uh, training unit at Holloman and our ability to train RPA pilots to continue to put them into the enterprise. They've been for the last uh, several years at about 50% manning, and it's because we've had them in a surge mode doing operational missions. So there's there's one part of it is we did get a gr agreement through the Department of Defense, and, and Secretary Carter was fantastic. We came down from 65 to 61, and in the future we'll come from 61 to 60. Uh, our Army Brethren have done some great things in helping us by standing up some capability that they have. 
that wasn't being uh, necessarily uh, as employed as the Air Force was, so the Army's been fantastic. And there's some other options we're looking at with respect to, to contracts and things like contracts and things like that. So that'll allow us, as we work our way through this, that'll allow us, uh, and we've been given an accelerated timeline, as you might imagine, uh, to get the, the training enterprise for the pilots to fill the, the positions uh, across the Air Force to make that enterprise healthy like other enterprises are. So that's one part of the training piece, and we're working hard on that. The other part is the one that, you, that I mentioned earlier, and that is a weapon school capability for the folks at Creech and Ellsworth and Whiteman and those folks in the, our National Guard units to have time where they're not doing operational missions and they're not upgrading somebody, they're doing what we call CT or continuation training where they d the discovery and, and, hey, let's try this, new tactics, techniques, and procedures, or different mission sets. You know, we are, it, I'll be honest, it doesn't hurt their mission. They are amazing at what they do in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, and, and, and it, so their ability to do the mission we're asking them to do downrange, there is no lack of training in that environment, none whatsoever. They are phenomenal. But the other mission, the higher in the contested environment, uh, the other mission sets we may have, but they don't get to practice their entire mission set because they're so focused on what they're doing in the current conflict that we're in. So that's the part that uh, I'm really looking at. How do I get back to that continuation training so I can make this enterprise healthy? So the, the CPIP, the Culture and Process Improvement Program, is ongoing now. As a matter of fact, fairly shortly after I get back, uh, I'll get start getting an outbrief on some of the discoveries uh, we started with the RPAs. Uh, it'll continue on from the RPAs right into the DCGS, because uh, that, again, I don't, I can never talk about one without talking about the other. Um, so I think uh, we'll, I'll, I'll outbrief that with Secretary uh, James and General Welsh at uh, Corona. That's going to happen uh, beginning in November, and we'll start. I mean, I, if if I have quick wins that I can do. As soon as I hear them, I'm going to go, hey, Chief, Madam Secretary Chief, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go make it happen. There's bigger institutional resource requirements that I need, and we'll do it uh, as we go. So we're going to try to do that as rapidly as we can, and, and I believe we'll, you will start seeing things being implemented, implemented very soon. Uh, well, we've done, you know, we went about it very, uh, we learned a lot from our nuclear enterprise uh, uh, folks and, and how they went around it and some of the challenges they were facing. It's a different challenge, obviously, significantly different, but we learned methodology. So we started with the surveys. Surveys have been out there for quite a while, I think, and uh, I, I can get back to you the exact, I think the surveys have been out there for a month or at least or something to that effect. So uh, we're get, gathering data. So what we're doing now is we're gathering data from surveys and we send them out across the, uh, across the enterprise. Uh, we are on the road now going to the units, talking. We're having focus uh, sessions with the airmen. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we have a tendency to talk about the RPA operators, uh, sensor operators, the maintainers, if you walk into, if you walk out there and see the configuration of how many different MQ-9 configurations there are out there and what that does to the maintenance folks, it, it's a it's a huge challenge. So we're 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 gathering all that data now, and uh, so and we're out on the road now getting ideas and our folks and our expertise trying to help them figure out ways to make that enterprise healthy. Okay. Next question. Right on the right. We'll go right across. Hi, good morning. Mark Parmelow with Defense Systems. Um, you had touched on electronic warfare briefly. Um, I was just wondering if you could elaborate on the role of electronic warfare going forward. Uh, it, is the, it is a key component of contested, denied, 
uh, in operationally limited environments, which we train, try to train to as much as we can out in, uh, in every enterprise we're in. I think uh, if you look at what our adversaries are doing, our potential adversaries are doing out there, electronic warfare is a key component of what they're trying to do to us. Our ability to employ our own electronic warfare uh, and how we do that, uh, systems that we currently have, uh, some that we probably can't talk about in this forum. Uh, if you notice when I talked about the F-22 and the going into the integrated air defense system, one of the components of that U.S. Uh, only package was EF-18Gs and what the Growlers are doing. Again, a great airplane doing some fantastic work in the joint fight. Um, I think electronic warfare, it, it goes back to some of that uh, technology I was talking about. How do you get across the spectrum so you're out of spectrum or multi-spectrum or ability to jump between spectrums uh, with respect to how you deal with sensor suites and adversaries capability or your ability to penetrate. So uh, electronic warfare is incredibly important. Again, by necessity, uh, we did not put enough emphasis on it for a period of time because it really was in the air domain, it was less of a factor in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, we didn't need to. If you look at the potential adversaries out there or environments we may be in, it is increasingly a challenge. And, and it is the same thing with cyber, although I would say cyber is more ubiquitous than our adversaries and potential adversaries are deeply rooted in cyber. And I think that's another one where we've got to root them out and we've got to seriously put efforts into the cyber cyber capability. But electronic warfare is a key component. And, and I think about it in every one of my mission sets, Air Spirit, Global Precision Attack, ISR, PR, and uh, C2. So it, it is incredibly important and working on it. That's, again, one of the great things about the F-35 is it brings a very impressive electronic warfare suite with it. And I think LRSB and the family of systems will be part of that as well. I think for in the interest of time, what we'll do is grab a couple questions. Sure. And, and that this may be the final last round. So let's see, I have one right here with the gentleman in the glasses. Good morning, General. Uh, I'm Dan Grazier from the Project on Government Oversight. Earlier this week, uh, you acknowledged that the F-35 cannot perform air combat maneuvers as well as some of the legacy aircraft, and that the F-35 will therefore have to rely on beyond visual range uh, capabilities. I'm interested to know what the Air Force is going to do when political reality set in and uh, the plane is going to have to uh, have positive identification on an enemy just like all of us who fought on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan had to do. And a follow-up question, because that was part of the original requirements for the F-35, is there going to be anything uh, done because Lockheed Martin was not able to deliver on, uh, on that promise? Okay, we'll do one more with that, and that'll be it. Okay. So one more question. Let's say I should go to the right <coughs> in the interest of fairness, all the way in the back. Good question. Hi, Eric Gomez from the Cato Institute. Um, you mentioned earlier that you have the two biggest problems that you face is a capability problem and I believe a resources problem. Capacity. Yes, the capacity problem, my mistake. Um, isn't this a symptom of not necessarily operational problems, but bigger strategic problems in that the US tries to defend a lot of places without re significantly expanding its resources? And in your capacity, do you have any sort of impact on the administration or a future administration to say, hey, we should maybe focus on a few smaller areas so that we can devote more capabilities to fewer places that really matter. Thank you. Those are two extraordinarily easy questions. Yeah, yeah. You're going to answer in approximately 35 seconds. No, you have more than It depends and no. So, uh, no. 
Um, so that, that's short answer. So great question on the F-35. So I, I, I do have to do a little correction in that I didn't say it couldn't do air combat maneuvering. I said it, it, is, it wasn't designed necessarily as a close-in maneuvering fighter like the F-22 was, which is an extraordinary close-in fighter. And I, and I referenced F-15s, F-16s back in the day. F-15 was really designed as an air superiority fighter, yet depending on what the configuration was and what block of the F-16 was, in a visual maneuvering engagement, the F-16 could outmaneuver an F-15. That was a fact of life. One was air superiority, one was multi-role, but it kind of got reversed. So I didn't, and in, in the case of the F-35, it, it's not a, it, it's not that it can't do it, it's just that it wasn't designed to be in the move of an airplane. It doesn't have vector thrust. It, it, it wasn't, and it's a single engine airplane, so it is different. Its ability to, uh, you know, I, I, it's what we all learn in, in flying airplanes and, you know, almost 4,000 hours later of flying a variety of airplanes. Um, you take advantage of the strengths your airplane has and you try to do everything in your power to minimize what it doesn't have. Uh, in the F-35, when we turn that airplane in, loose with the captains, they'll take advantage of the things that are good about it and they'll, and they'll you know, try to minimize the, the shortfalls or the things that aren't as strong in that airplane. I think if you look at the electronic warfare capability, if you look at the LO qualities, if you look at the situational awareness that has, uh, the maneuverability, it, you know, they'll, they'll do everything in their power to put them in a position where they won't have to be in a maneuvering environment with an airplane that's superior to them in maneuvering. It's what the F-16 and F-15s do today in, when they fight other airplanes. If you take a, you know, and I've, again, I've been doing this for a long time. If you take an F-15 out, and depending on its configuration, you fight against an F-16, or you take a F-16 and you fight against Raphael or Typhoon, you, you take advantage of the strengths. The Su-30, I got to fly a Su-30 MKI when I was in, in Pacific out in India. An incredibly maneuvering airplane. That doesn't mean I want it for my Air Force. It's, so, I, you know, I, I think you take the strengths of your airplane and, uh, and you take advantage of those and, and across the board, tactics, techniques, and procedures, the way you employ energy maneuverability to not put yourself in a position where you're gonna be at a disadvantage. So th that's part of it. Um, and the other thing I think when you said that F-35 will do air superiority role and it'll do it well. It'll do it exceedingly well because of the other attributes that it has as part of that airplane. Um, I, I, you know, what, what, if you look at every single airplane that we've had in our history, what comes off the line, if you look at an F-16A, an F-15A, and what we have today are brand new A-10 that was designed to take tanks out in the inter-German border to what we have today, those airplanes continually evolve and they continue to get better. And the F-35, again, in my opinion, is gonna be just like that. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but. What about the, the positive Oh, the positive identification. So I, 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 I think that's a great point. I think, um, Again, uh, you know, there's things that we look at uh, and there's things in a, in a different um, classification level we could get into, but, you know, will there ever be a time where you'll have to put your eyeball on somebody to, to make sure he's what you think he is? Uh, there may well be, there, there may well be, but we are doing everything in our power, again, strengths of what the United States brings and what our air power brings. We're doing everything in our power to use uh, everything we can to do situational awareness, which includes combat ID and positive ID on what that adversary is. Um, uh, you know, and, it, and it, it's that, it's electronic warfare piece, it's electronic identification, it's across the spectrum, it's multi-spectral capability, it's on-orbit capability that can provide SA. So, uh, th yeah, there, there may be, or there may be, you know exactly who they are and you get most of them, but you get one leaker. 
And, and so that's gonna, that, the potential that's gonna happen. The, the young men when we put in this airplane will figure out how to take advantage of its strengths and, uh, and minimize its, uh, its limitations, in my opinion. So the question back here. Um, so, I, you know, I, that's a great question. I, you know, I, actually I'd venture to say that my uh, international studies and political science uh, doctor here is, is much more versed than I am. I believe that, and I've said this publicly before, and I, it, does, it sounds a little melodramatic, but it's something I think. We, we will continue to be the best Air Force in the world. I truly believe that, mostly because of our airmen and our industry and American people and the way we do things. Um, but if the resources keep shrinking, the decision is to do what we have done. And, and I, uh, the other person I'll tell you, I'm a mathematician, I'm a closet economist, a national economy is an element of national power, and we've got to, I mean, our economy has got to be healthy, so I fully understand that. But the, if we continue to draw, if our Air Force continues to get smaller, if our Navy continues to get smaller, uh, in the case of the Air Force, which I know best, our Army, our Marines, our Coast Guard, uh, but in the case of the Air Force, we will become, and I, I, I'm trying to find the right way to say this, We'll still be the best Air Force in the world. We'll be only be able to do one thing at a time. We'll be regional only because we can only respond to one region at a time because we won't have the capacity to do as many things as we're asked to do. I think that's a discussion that the national, and I believe in this upcoming election that on both sides of the aisle, national security is gonna be part of that dialogue. And I believe the American people with the, their, their elected officials are going to have to have the dialogue of do we want to stay engaged around the world as we are today or are we willing to step back and let other people be other people maybe friends of ours maybe not be the predominant power in different or predominant engagement in different parts of the world and that's the I mean I really believe that's a dialogue the American people have got to do if if we keep going by 2020 if we stay on a sequestration level or BCA, Budget Control Act level uh, budget, we will go down to a one at a time Air Force. We'll be able to do one thing. We won't be able to do it as many places we're doing it today. We will also have a hard time doing everything from humanitarian assistance, disaster response through counterterrorism, through failed states, to contested, denied in, uh, environments in a high-end conflict. So. Um, I believe that's a discussion that has to take place am amongst the American people. And I don't think the dialogue's been had. Uh, I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, you know, and I think our Senate and our Congress uh, and House Representatives and Senate and folks in Congress, they're great Americans trying to do the right thing. They are. And when you go talk to them and they listen to you and you tell them what, you know, is going on in the Air Force from my perspective, and again, it's my perspective, they have a much broader view because they look at a lot more than I do. Um, they listen, they understand, uh, but collectively they haven't, and the electorate that put them there have not moved them into the discussion on national security. If it happens, I think it'll happen in the next year and a half, and I, I hope it does. I think our, 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 our country has to have that dialogue uh, and what we're going to be able to do in the future. Do I have any say? No. None whatsoever. I, I'm very good at being the Air Combat Command commander, and I'm really happy there. So. <laughs> well, General uh, Carlisle, I greatly appreciate you taking time away from being in Langley Air Force Base and across the Air Force um, doing what you do for Air Combat Command to, to share your thoughts with us here today. 
Um, thank you for all that you are doing, and I hope we see you back here again at CSIS. Thank you very much, Catherine. I enjoyed it. Thanks, folks. Appreciate it.